We're working our way through the book of Revelation and come this morning to chapter 7, and I'll be reading the whole chapter and hopefully covering the whole chapter as well. So hear now the reading of God's word this morning. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worship God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we ask that as we come to sit underneath your word this morning, that your word would enlighten our eyes, that it would rejoice our hearts, that it would make wise the simple, that it would lead us into your truth so that we can know the way of righteousness, so that we can walk in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after August of 1992, the state of Florida made some major changes and upgrades to their building codes. This was due to the fact that the devastation that was caused by Hurricane Andrew had been such an issue, especially for buildings that did not have structural integrity because it had peak sustained winds of 165 miles per hour at certain times. And winds of that magnitude can turn debris into projectiles and projectiles into issues and calamities and casualties. So one of the new building codes was that all occupied buildings in the state of Florida must have some form of hurricane protection on all exterior windows and doors. And one approved form of protection is, if you know these, hurricane impact windows. And the reason they're given that name is because they have to pass two very strenuous specific tests. One of them is a small missile impact test in which a group of small round metal bearings 
are shot at high speeds at these windows. The second test is a large missile impact test in which a group of two by four pieces of lumber are shot at these windows at high speeds. And each test is designed in a specific way to mimic and imitate the kind of winds and the kind of debris that exterior windows and doors are gonna have to endure. And this test, you'll be glad to know, if you have those windows, is a pass-fail test. There's not, there's not a grade, there's pass or fail. And passing or failing depends on the answer to one question in this test. Will these windows be able to stand up and endure these extreme conditions and circumstances? That question is very similar to the question that is asked at the very end of Revelation chapter six. Look there at verse 17. The very last question asked after all that we looked at in the opening of the seals of the scroll of God's unfolding purpose for history is who can stand? Who is able to endure? Under the extreme conditions symbolized by all of the opening of the first six seals, the four calamities of the first four seals, the suffering and persecution of the fifth seal, the just wrath of God from the sixth seal, who is able to endure and stand up under all of those extreme conditions? Well, our passage this morning in Revelation 7 is the answer to that question that is asked at the end of Revelation chapter 6. And the answer, who can endure these extreme conditions, is this. The people of God can stand because they are sealed enlisted, washed, and shepherded by the Lamb. The answer to that question, Revelation 6, verse 17, who can stand, is the people of God can stand, not because of anything in themselves, but only because the Lamb has sealed them. He has enlisted them, he has washed them, and he is their shepherd. That is the answer. So what I want to do this morning is walk through Revelation 7 and show how each one of those answers is given to that question that we're left asking at the end of Revelation chapter 6. So first, who can stand? The people of God can stand because they are sealed by the Lamb. Look at verses 1 to 3 of Revelation 7 with me. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four ones of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called to them with a loud voice, the angels who have been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So with this scene, we're, we're doing actually a bit of time traveling. We're, we're actually jumping back to that climactic moment just before the seals begin to open in Revelation 6. So this, this is one of the reasons why I don't hold to a strictly chronological view in the book of Revelation. Because there's times when an episode happens and then there's almost this interlude that actually goes back in time to give us other information. So we've had these six seals of calamities and suffering and persecution. And yet all God's people are wondering, how are we going to bear up under that? What is, what is our circumstance and situation going to be? Well, John is showing us in this vision that there was an angel before those seals were open, holding in his hand the seal of the living God. And just before those four angels were to be released in those first four seals, he calls a stand-down order. He says, hold on, wait, because I have the seal of the living God, and I'm going to put it on the foreheads of the servants of God. And then if you glance at verses 4 to 8, it gives us a very specific list of those who are sealed 
with that seal. So we know that this seal is significant because it's mentioned six times in this chapter alone. Six times we're said, the seal, the seal, we're sealed, we're sealed. Repetition is always an indicator of significance and importance. So what is this seal of the living God? This seal is a mark that the lamb places on his followers to demonstrate ownership and to guarantee protection. This is a seal that the lamb places on his followers to demonstrate ownership and guarantee protection. So the seal represents ownership, whose you are, and protection, who is going to take care of me, who is going to sustain and uphold me. In the ancient world, kings and prominent leaders would have a unique signet ring. So it'd be a ring, and then on that ring would be an insignia that was unique and particular to them. That way, when they sent out letters, let's say, let's say a king is overseeing a battle for his kingdom, and he has a general who's on the battlefield that he wants to send specific strategic instructions to. He would write the instructions, he would put it in a letter, and then he would drip hot wax from a candle onto the seal of that letter, and then he would press his insignia ring into that hot wax, and then he would let it dry and harden so it was sealed, and then he would conscript soldiers who would take that letter to that general. And when that general got that letter from the king, seeing that seal, he would know two things immediately. One, he would know who the letter came from. He would know who it belonged to because it had the insignia, the mark of the king on it. And he would know that he was the first one to read that letter because the seal had not been broken. It had been guarded, protected, and preserved so that he's the first one to open it. That's the ancient background of a seal. Modern example of a seal of ownership would be placing some sort of sticker or some sort of stamp on a book in your library or a possession in your home. So for example, in my library at my office, I have a couple books that if you open the front cover, it says, borrowed from the library of Kevin and Carol Jacobson, okay? <laughs> I didn't plan on them moving down here, you know? But those are in my library. A modern example of a seal of protection would be like this sign which I saw on someone's property. Maybe from the church, may not be, I won't say. But the sign read this, no trespassing. We don't call 911. This property is protected by the Second Amendment, okay? That's a seal of protection. You know going onto that property that there's a certain type of protection uh, being held at that property. It's one of those properties that if there is a zombie apocalypse, you wanna be friends with those people, okay? It's a seal of protection. So ownership and protection this is what that mark, that seal, is all about. When the Lord places that seal on the servants, he's saying to them, you are mine and I will protect you and uphold you. I will sustain you. Now the next question, is this seal something literal? Is, is it something kind of secret and, and hidden? Or is it symbolic? Well, I have to ask these questions because there are some end times extremists who often, I think, stoke fires of hysteria and anxiety at the same time by giving these wonky views that saying that this seal is some sort of very specific literal seal. And if you don't know what it is, you're going to miss the rapture and you're not going to survive the tribulation. So buy my book, which gives you all the secrets unlocking the seal. And, and that's slight exaggeration, but you can go on Amazon and you will find all sorts of things like that. Now, if you come across any sort of self-professing end times expert who proclaims to unlock the secrets that no one else has unlocked in the book of Revelation, 
run and do not walk to the nearest exit, okay? Instead, you need to understand this. You already have the key to interpret the book of Revelation, right? You, in your lap or on your phone, are holding the key to interpret the book of Revelation. The best interpreter of the book of Revelation is the other 65 books that are in your Bible that you're holding on to. That's the key. Not some end times expert. It is looking at Revelation and seeing are there other places in Scripture where God has revealed something about this in a plainer, clearer sense. The answer with the seal is yes. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Where else has God talked about a seal that he places on his people and what did he say about it? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. This is Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus. In him, in Christ, that is, you believers also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. Same word. Were sealed with what? With a secret mark that no one, no. With the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What Paul is saying there is, The seal is something literal, but not in the sense that many people take it. It's not some Harry Potter mark, a scar on your forehead. It is the gift of the Spirit by which, through faith in Christ, you are sealed by the Spirit of Christ. That is the seal. Now, when I say it's symbolic, I don't mean that it's something non-literal. I mean, it is something real in the real sense that the Spirit is realer than reality, but it's, it's not some specific secret mark that you need to unlock and discover. The seal is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, which is received by faith alone in Christ alone. It is not obtained by unlocking some secret. It is not some literal mark. You don't have to get WWJD tattooed on your wrist. It's the Holy Spirit that we receive by faith. So how do you get the seal? You get the seal by coming to Christ in faith and saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's how you get the seal. And those who come to Christ with the open and empty hands of faith never leave empty-handed. He places the seal of the Spirit in us by which he says, you are mine, and I will never leave you or forsake you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now understand, this seal is not a promise promise of deliverance from physical harm. Okay, Some people look at the seal and say, oh, he's going to protect us from any bad, uncomfortable thing. We know that's not the case because read the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. What does he promise them? Hardship, tribulation, distress, struggle. But it is a promise of spiritual preservation and perseverance for the believer who is sealed by the Spirit. And I love how that that hymn, How Firm a Foundation, puts together both that we're going to have to endure the things that the world is going to endure, but in Christ we have promises that uphold us. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, My grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. It's not a promise of deliverance from physical harm, but it is a promise that when we go through those things, we have God's purposes upholding us and turning them for our good. So the people of God are able to stand because they are sealed by the Lamb. Now second, the people of God are able to stand because they are enlisted by the Lamb. Look at verses 4 to 8, okay? So turning back to Revelation, verses 4 to 8, we're given a very specific list 
of a very specific group of people who receive that seal of God, which we talked about. So verse four tells us it's 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Then verse five to eight breaks that down, 12 groups of 12,000. So this verse brings up, of course, a number of questions. This is one of the most kind of hotly debated. If you were to like do like a look at Revelation with um, heat searching goggles for where it's most controversial, this would probably be very red and dark because it is very controversial. So one question that brings up is the identity question. Who is this group of 144,000? And, and there's six, seven views. I'm going to break them down into two groups. I'll make things simple for you. I'm an, I'm an end times expert, so trust me, okay? <laughs> two main answers to the question, who is this group of 144,000? One view is the literal view. In this view, people see this group in some form or another as a literal representation of either a literal group of people, n- number-wise, or a literal representation of ethnic Israelites that will be saved and sealed during the time of the tribulation. So if you've read the Left Behind series, that's a view purported there. John MacArthur holds this view. Another view is the symbolic view, which sees this group as a literary representation of the people of God throughout the whole church age, the time between Christ's first and second coming, not limited to a specific ethnic group or a specific period of time. Now here's why I lean toward the symbolic view. The first is, the seal that we just talked about is placed on the servants of God. The servants of God is a term that is used for the church, for all of God's people throughout all of history. And it, the seal that is received, the Holy Spirit, is never just given to a specific subset of people for a specific period of time. It is given to all God's people for all the time. So that's why I don't take the literal view. The second reason I hold to the symbolic view is that this list here is different from every list of tribes in the Old Testament. So I I think it's an allusion to the Old Testament, but when you compare it, so for example, here's your homework assignment, go to Numbers 1, where a tribe uh, census is given, and compare this list to that one, and what you'll notice is this one is different than every other listing of the tribes in the Old Testament. Two examples of that. In this list, notice who's listed first. It's Joseph, not Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn, always listed first in all the Old Testament lists. Joseph is listed first. Why is that? I think because it emphasizes what we just heard about in Revelation 5. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That there's a prominence given to Judah because the promise given to Judah was that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the nations. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, now placed at the head of this list. Also, this list includes Joseph's name. Joseph's name is never included in the list in the Old Testament. It's always his sons or one of his sons. And in this list, Ephraim and Dan are excluded. In every list in the Old Testament, you will find Ephraim and Dan listed. Here, you do not. Why is that? I think the reason that Ephraim and Dan are excluded is because they represent a warning to all of God's people throughout all time. It is one thing to be physically and externally part of God's people, But it's another thing entirely to be spiritually and internally part of God's people. Ephraim and Dan were by birth part of God's people. But in 1 Kings 12, after the kingdom divides and is splintering under Solomon's idolatry and turning away, Ephraim and Dan decide, you know what? They look at their tribe and their people. They said, you guys have been traveling too much, too far to go to the temple. 
Instead, we're going to build a golden calf and we're going to set it up one here in Ephraim, one here in Dan. That way you don't have to travel so far. You can save money on gas, you know, Putin's price hike, all those things going on, whatever excuse they gave. And they did what the nation of Israel had done in Exodus 32. They committed the same sin and they did not repent of it or turn from it. And therefore, they were cut off. They were removed. So it's a, it's a by their absence, it's a warning. That's one thing to be physically and, ex, and externally a part of God's people. It's another thing to be internally and spiritually part of God's people. One, one last reason I'll give for why I take this symbolic view. Elsewhere in the New Testament, like in Paul's letters, it is made clear that all who have faith in Christ, all who have a new heart, all who are sealed with the Spirit, those are truly Israelites. Those are truly the people of God. They're true Jews and true Israelites, regardless of their physical ethnic heritage. Let me prove that. Turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2. We're going to look at verse 28 and 29. When Jesus came to deal with the religious leaders, one of the things they said to him is, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus said, you're right. I'm sorry. I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to offend you. No, it's not what he said. He said, it doesn't matter if you have Abraham as your father. Merely just Abraham as your father. Because actually, it's faith that matters. He said, you're actually of your father, the devil, because you've rejected the son of God. Okay, he, those were fighting words. Paul is dealing with a similar issue. Jews who think we're in because of heritage. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, Paul's saying, Paul is not denying Jewish ethnic lineage and heritage. That's, that's one thing. What he's talking about is on a spiritual level, to be a Jew spiritually is not about an external sign. It is about an internal transformation that comes about by the spirit of God. And everyone who has that is a spiritual Jew. Now, some people call this replacement theology, which is a kind of a pejorative term for saying, I believe that the church replaces Israel and God kind of kicked them to the side and says, you know what, I like these people better. That's not what I'm saying. In the Old Testament, you have, you have an acorn that is planted in the ground. God chooses Abraham. He says, through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And that acorn starts to grow through a specific ethnic group of people. But there's exceptions. There's, there's Rahab who comes in. Rahab is not a Jew by birth. Okay. And there's exceptions where Jonah is sent to Nineveh to preach the gospel to them. But it's primarily focused on this geopolitical ethnic group. But in the New Testament, what we see changing is that this group and this promised Abraham starts to blossom and grow into an oak tree. And the oak tree looks like, go therefore to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. People from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. And yes, it includes, starts with 12 Jewish men, the disciples, but it expands to an Ethiopian eunuch, and to Cornelius the Gentile, and to all these people. And it's not a different group of people. It is the one people of God. Some branches have been broken off, and some branches have been grafted on. One tree. That's my view of the whole debate between Israel and the church. And I did get one amen, so I appreciate that. Okay. (laughs) What matters is not that you can say Abraham is my father by heritage, but you can say Christ is my savior by faith. That's how you become part of that tree, that oak tree of the people of God. Now, next question. If I'm correct in seeing this list as a literary symbolic representation of the people of God, 
Why is the people of God depicted in this way? Why this list? Well, some would say, well, the number is literal. There's kind of a specific subset of maybe martyrs who receive this special mark. I don't think 144,000 is literal. I think it's symbolic. I mean, if I'm doing my math correctly, you take 12 times 12 times 1,000, you get 144,000. So 12 is the number that represents the people of God, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. 1,000 is the largest number that you have in the Greek language at the time. So it's a vast number of people, but still counted. It's still counted. And it represents the fact that the Lord, who is our good shepherd, knows and can account for every single one of his people. That he has a census perfectly in his mind of every single one of his sheep who are part of his flock, and not one of them is missing. The Lord's attention is so infinite, his knowledge is so vast, that he knows and can account for every single one of his people, even in the midst of calamities. I think this is encouraging because as the people of God are going through these calamities, one of the questions they're asking is, why, Lord? Where are you? And yet he knows them. They're always counted. He is close enough to number every single one of the hairs on our head. A little easier for me, harder for some of you. His people at all times are always accounted for by him because he has knowledge of all things. He never lets any one of his people slip through the cracks. Yeah, I lose track of my own children at times. I have five of them. It seems like a lot. It's not compared to some. My brother's pastor has 13 kids. And I lose track. There's one time, there's moments as a parent where your, your heart kind of crushes because you did something wrong. Went to the grocery store with William, came back, unloading the groceries. It was in the winter, so it was, it was cool. Put the groceries away and you know, five minutes probably passed. And I go out to the car because I thought I forgot something. Well, it turns out I forgot William in the car. And poor kid just sitting there sobbing and crying. He said, Dad, I thought you forgot me and didn't remember me. (sighs) You never have to worry about that with the Lord. We just sang about it. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. He knows all his people at all times. The other reason this list is significant is because it depicts the people of God as a, mil, a, a an army. It's, it's an enlisted army, a multitude of people who are enlisted as a military group. The reason I say that is in the Old Testament, every time a tribal list is given and numbered according to the sons, it's listed that way because they're preparing for battle. So if you go to Numbers chapter one, it lists the tribes of the sons of Israel by the sons of Ephraim, by the sons of Manat, by the sons of Dan, in Numbers 1, what they're preparing to do is they're counting how big is our army. Because what are they go, about to go do? They're about to go to the promised land. They know there's Canaanites, there's Perizzites, there's Hivites, all these other groups of people, and they have to conquer the promised land. Well, similarly here, a spiritual battle is taking place. We are part of a spiritual army that fights not against flesh and blood, but against all the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, and we fight with spiritual armor. And so for the Christian... Military language is used all the time. We're to fight the good fight. We're to endure suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We're to put to death, not other people, but our own sin. Put to death what is earthly in you. Put to death your flesh. Put to death temptation. And our military strategy in the scriptures is to declare the gospel in word and to demonstrate it in deed as we live before an unbelieving and hostile world. So we're enlisted in the Lord's army. And because we're in the Lord's army, 
we can have confidence that Christ has won and already secured the victory. And as soldiers in his army, we get to share in the victory that he has already won for us. We get to divide the spoils of his conquest and his conquering. So we can stand because we are enlisted in the Lamb's army. Well, thirdly, the people of God can stand because they are washed by the Lamb. So we move from verses 4 to 8 with this very specific list with specific numbers. And then into verse 9. And John goes from hearing about, in verse 4, this uh, 144,000, to looking and seeing, in verse 9, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So isn't it interesting? He, he hears about 144,000, then he looks and sees an innumerable multitude that's an international group of people. So another question that comes up, is this group in verse 9 and forward a new and distinct group, or is, it, is there some relationship between this group and the first group? Well, some argue that these groups, verse 4 and 8 and then verse 9 and following, are two distinct groups. One is Jewish believers during the rapture. The other is Gentile believers in heaven that have been raptured out. But I think it is more accurate to say that John is showing us one group of people from two different angles. So picture it like this. There's one shot that John is taking, or there's one thing that John's looking at, but he's got two camera angles set up. I don't know if you've ever done any any filming or, or whatnot, but sometimes you want to get multiple camera angles to see something from a different perspective. That's what John, I think, is doing, and he's done this before. Turn back to Revelation 5. Revelation 5, 5. John has just seen the scroll. No one in all of heaven is, is worthy to open it. So he starts weeping. Verse 5 of Revelation 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. He can open the scroll. So he hears about from this elder a lion of the tribe of Judah. But then look in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So which is it, John? Did you hear about a lion and see a lamb or is it both? And the answer is, it's both. It's the lion who is the lamb, the lamb who is the lion. He hears one thing and sees another because he's taking those two metaphors and putting them together in one thing. It's the same thing here in Revelation 7. He hears about this numbered people. And then he also then sees this innumerable multitude. So from camera angle one, the church is known and numbered very specifically by the lamb. Then you switch to camera angle two, and the church is so vast and so grand that no mere human can count it. And it's made up from people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. It's as if Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 is coming true. Remember the promise to Abraham? Your people will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as vast as the sand on the seashore. Here it is, an innumerable multitude. Well, then you switch back to camera one, and you see the church in relationship to its Old Testament roots as it grows out of all the promises and prophecies made to the nation of Israel, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. Then you switch back to camera two, and you see the church in relation to its New Testament fulfillment, a globally diverse people that has been gathered as the gospel has gone throughout the globe. Then you switch back to camera one, and you see the church on earth as a spiritual army that is fighting a spiritual war and enduring suffering as they do it. Then you go back to camera angle two, and you see the church in heaven 
triumphantly resting and worshiping the lamb and celebrating the victory that he has already accomplished. That's, I think, what John is doing. Camera angle one, camera angle two, so we'd see the same people of God from two different perspectives. And the heavenly perspective of the church is meant to be a means of encouragement and instilling hope for those who are on the church and earth. Because those who are part of the church on earth, they're still in the thick of it. They're enduring trials. They're going through troubles. They're facing hostility and hardship. And sometimes that can cause us to ask questions like, is perseverance possible? Can we make it safely across the finish line? And this verse of the heavenly church encourages the earthly church to see that there is an innumerable multitude that has already gone before you. And all of their testimonies are different versions of the same truth sung in verse 10. Look there with me. What do they sing? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the heavenly church is able to, from a different perspective, look back at all they endured through their earthly life, all they went through, all that was required of them, and they can say, God sustained me every moment. It was all of grace, and all his grace was always sufficient. So it's meant to be an encouragement to the church on earth. And notice that all credit, all praise, all boasting goes only to the one on the throne and to the lamb. In other words, there are no Arminians in heaven, only former (laughs) Arminians in heaven. I didn't say Armenians, okay? I said Arminians. This is a a reform side joke, okay? Well, also, this is an encouragement. This heavenly perspective of the church is an encouragement because those who are part of the church on earth are enduring constant temptations and allurements of a sinful fallen world that is seeking to draw them away from faithfulness to the Lamb. And they're wondering, how do you remain faithful and pure? How do you remain vigilant in the midst of all that would draw you away from faithfulness to Christ? Well, the heavenly church gives us a picture of what helps us endure temptation. The more that we are like the church in heaven, whose eyes are directed at and focused on, whose hearts are giving praise to the one on the throne and the lamb, the more the sinful temptations of the earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What they're encouraging, yes, thank you. What they're encouraging the church to do is fix their eyes on Christ, to Give themselves in worship to the Lamb, even as you endure suffering and temptation. And notice that last sentence of this section in verse 14. He said, he, John has asked a question, you know, who are these? And he says to the person who asked him, you, you know who these are. And the answer is, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes white. And they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How did the church endure? How did it get to where it was? How did it become part of the people of God? It's a glorious paradoxical statement. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. His blood is the means of their purity. His death is the means of their victory. And a lamb who died is their conquering king. So John's putting these paradoxes together so that we would celebrate the fact that it is through the death of the son of God that we have victory and forgiveness, that we have sustenance and perseverance if god should keep a record of our sins who could stand but there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from emmanuel's veins so that sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all their guilty stains the last one i think i have time for this the people of god can stand because they are shepherded by the lamb look at verses 15 to 17 
I don't have time to go into to all these, but John lists out a number of promises, all taken from the Old Testament and put together and shown that these are fulfilled in Christ. So verse 15, for example, look there with me. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So John is saying is all those promises in the Old Testament where God said, I will restore my temple. I will dwell in your midst once again. You will be my people and I will be your God. Or when David says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. John is saying, this is being fulfilled in the presence of the lamb who was slain. And then verse 16, look there with me. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. This is taken primarily from Isaiah 49, 10, and it's to communicate the fact that God brings his people out of the spiritual wilderness of this world. So all this terminology here in verse 16 conjures up images of a wilderness. Where do you go and are hungry and thirsty and struck by the sun and scorching heat? It's in the wilderness. So he's, he's depicting this fallen sinful world as a type of spiritual wilderness that we have to traverse through. And he says, in God, we will be delivered out of that. And there'll be no more hunger, no more thirsting, none of the things we had to endure as we went through the wilderness of this world. And then read with me the second half of verse 17. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So the same one who said on the cross, I thirst, will bring us to springs of living water where we'll never thirst again. The same one whose hands were pierced with nails for us will use those hands to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And this is the, the, the inverse of what the promise that was just given, verse 16. God not only delivers us out of the wilderness, he delivers us into the green pastures of his glorious presence and beside the, the still spring living waters of eternal life. And sandwiched in between all those promises is the reason why they're true. Look at the beginning of verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Here again, another glorious gospel paradox. Lambs are not shepherds, right? In reality, we know that. Lambs need shepherds, they're not shepherds. And yet, Jesus is the good shepherd who became the slain lamb. Why? So that you could have the seal of his Holy Spirit. So that you could be enlisted in his victorious army. So that you could have the washing of his cleansing blood and so that you could be brought into and shepherded to his satisfying presence. We are the sheep of his pasture. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall be able to stand. That's how Revelation 7 answers the question at the end of Revelation 6. Let's pray.